Geoguitch, and welcome back to the study of the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to the beloved physician, St. Luke. Today, we sort of begin a new mini-series, if you will. This series could be two parts, or it could be 20 parts, I'm not sure which, though I doubt it'll be the second one. Um, because today, we start our journey through the prophecy of Zechariah in the first chapter of Luke's Gospel. We will be looking at no more than the first three verses of his prophecy, but I will read the um, entire thing anyway. Now, of course, this isn't really a new series. I only said that because, well, it's going to seem a bit like a series. I was originally going to do it all, um, you know, verse 67 to 80, um, all in one go. However, I feel like I'll be doing a bit of a disservice to the text. Uh, I regret not doing, um, or not going into more detail uh, for the Magnificat, and I don't want to have similar regrets here. Oh, by the way, I was considering actually going back and redoing the Magnificat in more detail. Let me know if that's something you would be interested in seeing. Um, I know I didn't go into the greatest amount of detail. At least I could have gone into a bit more detail. And look, anyway, there's no point in going over all that now. Like I said, I just want to make sure I don't have the same regrets for Zechariah's prophecy or for any other part of scripture as I do for the, uh, the Magnificat. Now, with all of that um, being said, it's time to get into it. So we'll be reading from Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 80. Now, remember, despite the fact that I will read this entire section, we will only be focusing on verses 68 um, to 70. So this is Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 80. And his other Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. A new child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in sh the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace and the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel now like I said we will only be focusing on verses 68 to 70 and um, now because of this I will reread these verses so you know exactly what we will be focusing on so here's Luke chapter 1 verses 68 69 and 70 Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. It's always a privilege, though I don't always make it known, um, for me to be able to read and interpret for you and myself the word of God, the word of the living God. So... Let's finally get started on the study of his wonderful word. Start with verse 68, where we read, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel. Now, the Greek word for blessed here is yulgetos, which means worthy of praise as well as a few other things. 
Now, we know from elsewhere in the Bible that God is absolutely worthy of our praise. If we go to Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, we see that it says, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And if we go now to Second Samuel chapter 22, verse 4, we see that it says, I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. So we know from other parts of sacred scripture that God does deserve our praise. Why does he deserve our praise? Well, there are, there are a myriad of reasons. Now, in this verse, Zechariah gives one reason, uh, but like I say, it's not the only reason. Here he says, for he has visited and redeemed his people. God cares about his people. He loves them and wants them to be saved, to be redeemed. It's his faithfulness to his uh, sinful bride, as well as a number of other qualities, which I won't be going into in today's sermon, that make God blessed or that make God worthy of praise. And we see this displayed throughout scripture. I'll read Psalm 148. It's only 14, uh, 14 verses, so I'll read the full thing. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps. Fire and hail, snow and mist, mist. stormy wind fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars. Beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. Kings of the earth and all peoples. Princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people, praised, uh, praised for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near him. Praise the Lord. God wants us to praise him, but he doesn't just want our praise he also deserves our praise he doesn't need it by any means he got on just fine before us but he wants it and we owe it to him god who created creation itself who painted the most beautiful picture ever painted the night sky who sent his son to die on a cross for sinful humanity who condescended to give said people his holy word the God who created you and I deserves far more than we can ever give him. We can never praise him enough. But that shouldn't stop us from trying. Praise God as the psalmist did. He deserves it and he deserves so much more. Next we go to verse 69. There we read about the horn of salvation. Now you will have... Um, or, or we read about the horn of salvation already in the psalm. I read Psalm 148 verse 14 he has raised up a horn for his people and now this horn in verse 69 came from the house of david so what did zechariah mean by this phrase by the phrase horn well the idea of the horn represents being free from uh, oppression now jesus did come to free his people from oppression however he didn't come to free them from the type of oppression that they thought he would you see 
Everyone thought that when the Messiah did come, it would be to free Israel from their oppressors. Now, at this particular point in time, their oppressors just so happened to be the Romans. So everyone thought he was coming to defeat the Romans. But this isn't the oppression which Jesus came to free his people from. No. Instead, he came to free them from a very different kind of oppression. He came to free them from an oppression of their own making. The oppression he came to free them from was the oppression of sin. That's why he is the horn of salvation. Jesus is coming to bring about the salvation of his people. At the time that Zechariah is prophesying this, he's already come, obviously. Now, this isn't just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles also. Specifically, those Gentiles whom God elects. It's interesting to note that even to this day, Jews have a faulty view of the Messiah. Ben Shapiro has said that the Messiah was always meant to be a political figure. Now this shows how prevalent the false view of the Messiah was um, to the point where it still persists today. Now you see, the Old Testament tells us that the Messiah would be a ruler. If we go to Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10, we see that it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and he shall be, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So, was Jesus a ruler? Well, Yes not of any kingdom on, uh, on earth. You see, Jesus Christ's kingdom is the kingdom of heaven. That's what he will rule over. That is where he will rule over his people. That is where all shall be obedient to him. And of course, there's also this life where we must also be obedient to our king. And when we're not obedient, it's called sin. And sin is what Christ came to save us from, and it is something that, unfortunately, we all do, as we are taught many times throughout Scripture. Now, when we sin, we bring God's judgment upon ourselves. People don't like to admit this, but the truth is that the first time we sinned, God could have struck us dead and sent us straight to hell, and his righteousness would be in no way questioned. But because he is merciful, he lets us live. And for those of us whom he elects, because of the work of Christ on the cross, he is merciful enough to give us eternal life. John 3.16, the famous verse, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus died so that those who believed could live forever. He took our punishment on the cross. God poured out his wrath on Christ, on the cross, on his own Son, in order that we would not have to experience experience that wrath in order that he would not have to do it to his own people that is why he is the horn the victor of our salvation he was victorious over death he defeated death he defeated sin when he died on that cross he achieved the salvation of his people he was victorious Finally, in verse 70, we read, As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. What does this tell us? Well, it shows that God keeps his promises. He made the promise of salvation to his people through his prophets a long time ago. Now, at the time of Zechariah, he is using a priest to prophesy and let everyone who hears him know that the prophecy is being fulfilled. 
God is faithful, as we've discussed many times throughout this series. He keeps his promises. He does not lie. Numbers 23.19 God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? That's a rhetorical question, of course. When God says he will do, when he speaks, he will fulfill. However, the faithfulness of God is not all that we can get from this verse. I like what um, Calvin has to say about Luke one seventy. He says, As he spake that the salvation which is said to have been brought by Christ may not be thought doubtful on the score of novelty, he adduces as witnesses all the prophets who, though they were raised up at different times, yet with one consent teach that salvation is to be expected from Christ alone, nor was it the sole design of Zacharias to celebrate the truth and faithfulness of God in performing and fulfilling what he formally uh, promised. His object, rather, was to draw the attention of believers to the ancient predictions that they might embrace with greater certainty and cheerfulness the salvation offered to them, of which the prophets from the beginning had testified when Christ comes forth adorned with the testimonies of all the prophets. Our faith in him rests on a truly solid foundation. The things which Zechariah was saying, is saying, excuse me, the things that John will soon teach, the things that Christ will proclaim. They're not new sayings. They're not new teachings. They're not new proclamations. They are built upon a very old foundation. People had been saying these things for hundreds of years. Christ didn't come about and start making stuff up. He was fulfilling that which was promised of him that which was prophesied or prophesied of him i don't know who's listening to this what i do know is that you are a sinner because the bible tells me so now maybe you've already repented and maybe you already believe in the gospel in which case this isn't for you now there's no harm in you listening of course but who i'm really talking to at those who have either not repented and believed or who think that they might have but aren't quite sure if their salvation is true, if they are genuine Christians. They aren't sure about their salvation. As we have seen today, our God is trustworthy. He keeps his promises. He has promised all of his people that they will be saved. Some may ask, how do you join the kingdom of God? The truth is you can't. You can't join. You must... Be called by God first. John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. But if, if God has called you, then what? Well, now you must repent and believe the gospel. These things will not save you. Only God can do that. Only Christ on the cross and his blood can wash away your sins, only he can save you. All this does is show that you are called. If you are truly saved, then repentance and belief will always follow because regeneration precedes faith. That's not a um, procession in time. That's a, 
are a logical priority, I believe it's called. So that doesn't mean that time elapses between the two. That doesn't mean that you regenerate it and then a, f- a few days or minutes or even half a second later that um, you repent and believe. They are instantaneous in time. But logically, uh, that is, when it comes to which must happen for the other to happen, you must be regenerated in order to have faith and repent. There's no time elapsing between them. The two happen simultaneously. But it's because from that regeneration instantly comes faith. But regeneration does not come from faith because in order to have faith, God must first call us. Now, if you do not repent and believe, it shows that you are not called. But what if you don't feel repentant, but you want to come to Christ anyway? Well, the Bible says, seek and you shall find. God is not hiding himself from people who want to seek him. Truth is, if you want to seek him, chances are he's already called you. Because sinful man does not go about seeking God on his own. Now, if you are saved, then once you are saved... You cannot lose that salvation because it was never really yours to begin with. Salvation is of God. He grants it to whoever he sees fit. He does not grant it to people and then take it away from them like some huckster. He does not give and then revoke. That would be a cruel dishonesty on God's part. And God is neither cruel nor dishonest as we have covered today. He wants to save his people. This promise of salvation did not originate with Jesus. Rather, Jesus' teaching on the subject are built upon a foundation of hundreds of years of prophecy. God promised to save his people. God fulfilled his promise on the cross. If you have not yet repented of your sins, then please do so now. It is your only hope because no one can come to the Father except through Jesus Christ. And once you are there, he will never let you go. The Bible says that God elected us from before the foundation of the world, before creation itself happened. God knew who he was going to save. And I cannot imagine God one day deciding I'm going to save that guy and then a little while later changing his mind. I don't see how you could logically believe in something like that as if God elected someone and then unelected them at a later date. It makes no sense because when God decided to elect them, he would have known about the things that that person would have done that would have made him not want to elect them anymore and so he would just never have elected them. And the Bible says in Acts, that those who go away from us were never truly of us. Because God will never lose any of his sheep. He's the good shepherd and he keeps them all close and safe. He does not bring people into his pasture. And leave the gate open. And let them just wander off. Nor does he let other sheep just wander in. Other animals just wander in. He has his sheep. Whom he loves and cares for and will protect. He will not allow them. Those who are not his sheep into his pasture, he will not allow those who are his sheep to leave his pasture. Now, once you are saved, once you are regenerate, you will still sin. You will still fall. We see that in the Gospels. We see Peter denied Jesus three times. We see people like David murdering, committing sexual immorality. People like Solomon committing sexual immorality. These people were all saved at the time that they did these things. But they still fell. Because God does not promise us perfection. He promises us sanctification. He does not promise us perfection. Not in this life. You are a Christ- If you are a Christian, if you are saved, but you still sin, 
It's not good because it's sin. It's not right because it's sin. But unfortunately, it is normal. As Christians, we do fall. But the love of God is so strong that he forgives us after we fall. And even though we may make attempts to wander out of the pasture, he will never let us. Repent and believe the gospel for it is your only hope. And once you are in God's loving embrace, you cannot wrench yourself out of it. Thank you for watching this video. I hope you liked it and found it enjoyable. Most of all, I hope you found it edifying. I hope you join me next time as we continue to study the wonderful word of our wonderful God. Thanks for watching. Goodbye. God bless. And slán agus gúrami amakot.